Armed bullets and the border. Dr. O'Higgins, Providence and President de Valera made General O'Duffy available. I remember him well. I knew him very well. Welcome back to the third episode from the Border Kitchen. Today's episode will feature a discussion with Dr. Brian Hanley on the impact of Bloody Sunday south of the border. But before getting to that, I'd like to introduce my co-collaborator on this project, Hugh Lyons. I've spoken in the last few weeks in terms of we involved in the podcast, and some suspect that there wasn't a we, it was just myself. So welcome aboard, Hugh. Thanks, Paddy. Pleasure to be here. I suppose me and you, we've both been working hard behind the scenes, been used to the technical side of all this, and we've also been looking for some good guests in the coming months. So what have you got for you? Have you got anyone interesting lined it up, maybe outside the field of politics, just a broader, broader view on border and border life? Yeah, absolutely, Paddy. Um, I suppose our vision at the start of this podcast was always that we'd have a, a mix of sport and political, cultural conversations uh, with those that are connected to the border. From a sporting perspective, I suppose there's been no more to heart of this than on border politics in Cross McGlen, GAA. So we'll be talking with former Armagh and Cross McGlen star Oshie McConville in uh, the next episode. Phew, that's brilliant. Um, Oshie McConville, obviously, Cross McGlen GA club, centrally involved in a lot of issues throughout the Troubles. They're pitched controversial in my own book. You can see a picture of a march. Hugh's having a, a wee laugh here. I always like to get the plug in about the book. Um, you see a picture of a march in 1979 about Cross McGlen GA facilities been taken over by the British Army. You know, it's fascinating. I really look forward to hearing that, plus the sporting side of it. How can we get the listeners maybe to help us out and get the message spread about our podcast? We rely heavily on our social media presence. So any retweets, likes, any interaction at all that you can is very, very much appreciated. Also, in terms of those of you that are listening on iTunes, please review us. Uh, We want to kind of build up a listenership and build up a loyal following. And all these things are very much appreciated. It gets the traffic going, which is very, very important for us. That's great, you and um, like the iTunes reviews in particular. I wasn't aware of the significance of them, but you can see when when a couple of people start sharing the podcast, we're looking at the numbers and the listenership, and you can see once a couple of people have shared it, you instantly see a spike in terms of listenership, and you hear feedback of people hearing it through friends and friends. So even though this particular episode or whatever mightn't be your cup of tea, it might it's something that interests your friends. So I suppose it's like anybody starting out with a project, we really appreciate your support. And so far, feedback has been unbelievably positive. And I'd like to thank everybody who's liked, shared and so on. Today's interview, I have to admit, it was about an hour and a half conversation with Brian Hanley. And I could have sat with him for five hours. He's a wealth of information. He's so easy to listen to. He's so well-spoken. He's one of the top academics that we have. And everything about his style... It's so accessible. His writing and his speaking. Brilliantly regular guest on the Vincent Brown show. And you can see why. Um, what did you think of it, you? You were listening back in the editing process. Yeah, Paddy, look, it was fascinating. I know from my own time in Maynooth, uh, I didn't study history, but I know friends of mine would have ha- had Brian and always would have found, you know, 
his lectures very very insightful and engaging look as you say for people that might necessarily sometimes at these kind of history talks it's very heavy you know top heavy on information you can lose the listener but maybe it's his way i thought it was a really really informal chat you know the the title of our podcast is stories from a border kitchen i liked a little touch you know with the the cup of tea being made and all so it was pretty informal i enjoyed that from my own perspective look i was obviously very aware of bloody sunday but probably not so much on the aftermath of it and i found obviously that the, the key thing that we the listeners will find in the podcast is the stuff on the burn of the embassy and, and the subsequent stories that went on after that so i mean the thought was really really insightful i thought he's very very enthusiastic has a really clear manner with him and uh, just a, a lovely voice to listen to and i found it very very interesting and intriguing you know yeah no it really as i say i could have sat with the man all evening it was initially going to be a 45 minute interview when i went to edit it you know there was so little that you could chop out because it was just the depth and the quality of the information top level academic it was great to hear him in action so here we go brian hanley will be hearing from us again in the next few weeks so stay tuned and as i say like share forward on to friends or whatever i'm here with dr brian hanley brian is a leading irish historian currently working in edinburgh university previously he lectured in ucd tcd and maynooth among his publications are the IRA 1926-36, The Lost Revolution, The Story of the Official IRA and the Workers' Party, a documentary history of the IRA 1916-2005. Currently Brian is finishing a book on the impact of the Northern Ireland conflict on Southern Ireland to be published by Manchester University. So good to have you here Brian. Um, we're just looking and we're going to talk today about the impact of Bloody Sunday south of the border and you're writing currently on the 1970s. It's an area that I feel is under-discussed and under-researched, particularly the impact of the Troubles on the 26 counties. Now, we're in the midst of the decade of centenaries covering the period from World War I to the Civil War. Uh, for a long time, aspects of this period were largely ignored in public discourse. I'm thinking of you know, the experience of World War I veterans and aspects of the Civil War. Um, perhaps these issues were seen as too divisive. If we skip forward, do you think that there's a danger in public discourse in the South that again we're ignoring a key part of our recent history related to the impact of the troubles south of the border? Yeah, firstly again, thanks for giving me the opportunity to, to speak to you today, Paddy. I think that in some senses it it's probably takes quite a long time to be able to do the kind of forensic histories that you're seeing now of the War of Independence period, where it's almost been rebuilt from on a day-to-day local level. And that probably wasn't possible to do in the 1940s or 1950s, because one, um, a lot of people were still around and would have, wouldn't have wanted to, for the thing to be discussed in that detail. A lot of the material that was collected was based on the, on the, were collected on the basis that it wasn't going to be released until much later on and it was quite close to the bone i think you can talk a hundred years on and it's still close to the bone because there's still some very bitter controversies about the war of independence particularly the issues of the sectarianism for example and also there will be about the civil war but it is in some ways because the wealth of information we have possible to do a really really detailed study of ireland in that period the 1970s is a bit more problematic Uh, the irish state as you know doesn't release a huge amount of material the British state releases maybe a, a little bit more 
you're dealing then to a great extent with newspaper coverage which can be problematic although I think it's very valuable to try and look particularly at local newspapers in that period and also maybe um, the popular press which doesn't get the same you know level of analysis that that newspapers like the Irish Times might you're trying to examine what exists of relatively recent oral histories and opinion polls and so on so but I think in some ways people may think they know the story they know the big events of the 1970s so there's a you know a feeling maybe that it doesn't need to be studied and then plus you have a lot of people I think who would rather it isn't talked about in great detail because they've either changed the positions that they advanced then or things happened in the 1970s that they're not particularly that keen on discussing and again in the week that's in it you know you've seen the death of 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 Liam Cosgrave and a lot of the obituaries and a lot of the newspaper coverage is kind of skirted around the controversies that accompanied his government particularly the question of the heavy gang guard of brutality and censorship and so on which has only kind of been referred to in passing you know the way that that government dealt with the Dublin Monaghan bombings as well you know not really so far dealt with in any detail but I was fascinated for a number of reasons with the 1970s and I thought it was time to try and look as you you have done yourself um, on, on, on another aspect of, of that decade it was time to try and look at it. Yeah and it's interesting too in that period in the 1970s that like as you said different people don't want it looked at for you know very different reasons like the southern state has a weak spot in terms of you know it was very, I suppose, anti-Republican during that era. If you think of 1976, when you know the the uh, Easter commemoration was banned in O'Connell Street, and there was no commemoration, and you contrast that with, you know, the celebrations that we had in 2016. You know, there's there's a disconnect there, and then you know Republicans also are uncomfortable with a lot of the issues that they were involved in south of the border in the 1970s as well and then you also have the legacy issues associated with the loyalist attacks in Dublin and Monaghan and they're not covered so there's a lot of uncomfortable issues for all the groups in terms of political violence south of the border would you? Yeah I'd agree I mean I think that one thing that I wanted to do was at least you know document what happened Mm. because again people feel they know but what people usually know are a couple of headline events Bloody Sunday, for example, or the Dublin Monaghan bombings. And there was a lot more going on than that, which added to this sense that the conflict was spilling over or that in some ways the troubles had arrived down here, so to speak. And even those terms are indicative of an attitude. So, you know, since the peace process in the last 20 years, the political um, you know atmosphere in Ireland has changed to a great extent. It's very hard to recreate now how, you know, dangerous and how fragile the state felt to many people in the 70s and how people could go from on the one hand expressing unprecedented levels of solidarity with northern nationalists I mean having gone for 40 or 50 years you know complaining about partition but not really doing anything about it to 1970 71 72 hundreds of thousands of people donating to funds for refugees people putting refugees up in their homes people given from their wages to funds for prisoners in the north of Ireland, people being mobilised to go on strike or demonstrate after Bloody Sunday. And then within a few years again, a real sense of withdrawal from that, a real sense of that conflict is is a bad thing and it's not really our problem and it's something that it's terrible, but you know it's their problem up there rather than ours 
down here. And these aren't different people. I mean, there's obviously two camps who are quite distinctive, maybe you could say Republicans mm -hmm. or radicals and those who take a very anti-republic position. But most people are in between. Most people change their minds. Most people are capable, and this is the thing, most people aren't political activists. Most people are capable of having very contradictory ideas of one week thinking the IRA are fighting for Irish freedom and a week later hating them. And that's one thing I, I wanted to try and, and get across, that it's, it's not clear cut very often. People react emotionally to events and some events cause almost no emotional reaction in the South and others cause huge reactions. And one of those events that obviously caused a massive reaction in the South was um, Bloody Sunday in Derry in January 1972. And it's one of these incidents that we know an awful lot about because we've we've had um it's one of those instances that we know an awful lot about we've had the Savile inquiry into it which obviously replaced the initial widgery inquiry back in 1972 so just would you mind recapping just what exactly happened in Derry there was a civil rights march organized by the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association it had been banned by the Stormont government um thousands of people still took part in it it got as far as Derry City Centre and was going to make its way back to the bog side, to Free Derry Corner for a rally. And it was a bit of, by Derry standards, relatively minor rioting near the city centre. But then uh, British Army paratroops moved in and opened fire. And that was around four o'clock on the Sunday. And within a couple of hours across Ireland, people became aware that nine, 10, 11, 12 people, eventually 13 people had been killed in Derry and whatever about all the discussion since then um, by the time of the 6.15 RTE news the word across southern Ireland was that the British army had massacred people um, and by half nine that night which is the later RTE bulletin at the time most people in the south would have agreed with the assessment of John Hume who was the local SDLP MP he he mightn't be the first person to say it, but he said it was another sharp fill, another massacre, another bloody Sunday. And that's, it ha It was it was bloody Sunday from the start. And a lot of news broadcasts also then carried a call from the James Connolly Republican Club in Derry, which is the official Republicans political wing, for an immediate general strike to bring the country to a standstill. And this is, you know, just, you know, mentioned in passing as, as part of these bulletins. But... The initial reaction is disbelief and then rage. But it comes, of course, on top of you'd had, since August 1969, more and more awareness of the North and, and sympathy with Northern nationalists. Then you'd had internment in August 1971. And throughout that winter, you know, you'd had a number of cases where civilians had been killed by the British Army. So this seemed to be, again, uh, uh, an acceleration, really, or an escalation of the British Army's brutality towards the nationalist population. And it you know, unleashed rage essentially across Southern Ireland. Yeah. The reaction in Dublin as news came through and we remember at this time there was one source of news, RTE news, and this was what everyone was watching. Um, the Cabinet met on January 31st under Taoiseach Jack Lynch and agreed a series of political measures including the withdrawal of the Ambassador from London and sending Foreign Affairs Minister Paddy Hillary on a whistle-stop tour of capitals to garner support for the Irish view. Presumably the government wanted to a political response to this and it to be played out at a political level but I think what your work is very good at is explaining what happened on the street and at street level the protests that took place the day and morning what exactly happened during that day and morning and um, do you mind just 
Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the meeting that you talk about and, and the government's announcements came that evening again. So it was, again, it was a, on RT News, Jack Lynch um, talked about that there was going to be a day of mourning on the Wednesday, which was the day of most of the Derry funerals. Um, on the, the following morning, on the Monday morning, initially, the initial reaction in many towns and, and areas is for walkouts. So in the Shannon Industrial Estate, thousands of people walk out of work and converge um, on, on Shannon Town Centre and there's impromptu rallies. In Cork, dockers stop work. They board a British ship, tear down its flag, force it to fly a black flag. Then they march into Cork City Centre and you've walkouts from plants like Pfizer's and Ford's and from Goulding's and, and Sunbeam. And by lunchtime, uh, in Cork on the Monday you've got thousands of people marching in the city centre and again impromptu rallies they go to the city hall the Labour Lord Mayor of Cork uh, makes a very um, rabble-rousing speech where he talks about for, for each one of ours that go one of theirs will go for example uh, Dahi O'Connell of the Provisionals um, gives a speech as well and you have right across that's essentially replicated in Sligo in Dundalk in Limerick and lots of other places there's unofficial strikes where Either for half a day or sometimes for a few hours, people walk out of work in protest of what's happened. And at the same time, you've got the executives of trade unions, local community groups, various bodies sending telegrams to Leinster House or to the Taoiseach's office demanding a National Day of Mourning. Actually, this is one of the things that you find a lot of groups demand a Day of Mourning. I think they, they compare it to the death of John F. Kennedy, for example, and say that if there could have been one for him, there has to be one for Irish people. And they're actually demanding, you know, the withdrawal of the ambassador. And, and they're demanding more than that because across the country, then you have emergency council meetings. So famously in Monaghan, a local official Sinn Féin councillor comes in and produces a handgun, puts it on the table and says this is the only language that the British understand. But generally what you have is less dramatic, but a lot of councillors from across the board calling for British withdrawal, calling for nationwide protests, calling for um, a day of mourning, calling for the government to demand UN intervention, calling for, you know, a whole range of measures like boycotts of British goods, for example. So... On the first day, you really have this spontaneous movement of protest that occurs right across the state from towns and villages right up to Dublin. And we talk about Dublin later on because there's a focus in Dublin that there isn't, you know, in most places, uh, in most towns and villages, there isn't a particular focus. People just march around. Mm -hmm. um, in Limerick and Cork, you have British rail offices, which are immediately sometimes besieged or at least protests take place outside them. In Dublin, you have the embassy, which again is, a, um, in some ways, um, deserves its own retelling. But you've got a spontaneous movement from below, really, that's demanding action by the government. So Jack Lynch's broadcast later that night reflects the fact that they've also been pushed into, you know, and he also is very careful to say that he hopes the Irish people won't undermine their protest by indiscipline or by doing anything that's against the law. So he's also calling for um, protest, but calm. And there is going to be, means everybody knows that there's going to be a day off. There's going to be a national day of mourning on the Wednesday. And the government was very conscious of maintaining control of the reaction to Bloody Sunday in that they wanted to be seen to be taking steps in terms of the day of mourning, in terms of withdrawing um, the ambassador, because otherwise I suppose it would have seen that it was Republicans leading the opposition to what was what occurred on Bloody Sunday, and that was certainly not what the government wanted at the time. 
And another interesting aspect I think it comes across in your work is the broad spectrum of people that were involved in the protest. You had everyone from, you know, IRA activists from Belfast on the run to your local Garda sergeant, your local pillar of the community, your local county councillor, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael. It was a broad section of the community, so this was no mean, we spoke earlier about activists, this was not activists coming to the street, this was just ordinary people. Yeah, I think Hibernia magazine talked about how the, the what was noticeable was the spontaneity and the, you know, the, the fact that it didn't seem to have any leadership, initially at least. You also had, you know, um, socialist activists years later talking about, you know, that the, the, the walkouts were not were independent really of any kind of militant trade unionists they you know now i'm sure at a, per, at a at a local level a lot of the time people who suggested walkouts and things like that may have been politically active in some way but it was far too widespread and far too i mean there's a unanimity about the reaction you don't have anyone publicly saying well the british might have a case here uh, now there might have been people who thought that you know there probably was a couple but publicly on that Monday nobody's saying that so what you're getting is this is disgraceful this is this is another bloody Sunday this is how Britain has behaved in Ireland for hundreds of years and, and how it's behaved across the world so there's there's very little controversy about the demand for protest but the, the way that protest begins to um, develop is walkouts from work unofficial strikes marches um, and, and rallies and then you know in most places nothing else really happens because there's no you know there's no focus there's no for focus anything else point. to happen so but the thing is there's going to be a day of mourning two days later so the next day the Tuesday then also sees walkouts and strikes sometimes in places where they hadn't happened on the Monday because all the newspapers are reported them so you can see again that this is building up a bit of momentum um, in Cork the bus workers go on strike and one of the bus unions the National it was called the National Bus Men's Union then, it's the Bus Workers Union now, they announced that they're going to strike on the day of mourning. So you do have calls then from some people for there to be a complete shutdown. Um, none of the the official trade union leaderships call for that. They all talk about two hours or two and a half hours off work. Uh, the employers, Federated Union of Employers, say that companies should facilitate time off work the Irish Farmers Association call for their members to stop work for at least an hour on the day of mourning and you begin to see then other um, methods of protest for example you know there's um, collections start to be taken up people say about donating wages from the day of mourning to funds for for the citizens of Derry you've got a whole um, series of special religious occasions that are being planned um, and Really, the, the, the Tuesday is quite dramatic as well in terms of the breadth of protests that are taking place. In Sandyford, for example, where the British ambassador's residence is, 150 local women who are described in the papers as Fox Rock housewives picket his residence with signs, you know, denouncing the new black and tans and things like that. So again, there's quite a broad sweep of protest and all kinds of personalities. Um, Lord Kilbracken, who's, um, I think, you know, based in Leitrim, but he's a British Second World War. And again, this is 90, early 1970s. A lot of people around who'd, you know, been around in the, in the Second World War. Um, he's a decorated war veteran as well as obviously an Anglo-Irish titled person in the House of Lords. He denounces the British government's version of Bloody Sunday as lies, says that he's going to renounce his British passport and, you know, says he's ashamed. You have a series of 
veteran Irish army, Irish veterans of the British military who begin to send back their medals to Downing Street in protest. So you've got all kinds of people, you know, caught up in this this wave of protest. Yeah, and the funerals themselves. Um, I was talking to someone recently, and they were talking about people. A lot of people travelled over from Donegal. Where was there? Big crowds travelled up from the south to the funerals themselves. Um, a lot of political figures attended. I'm not sure if the full cabinet attended. Maybe some cabinet members attended. Jack Lynch didn't attend. Um, I think at some of the protests, um, there was people carrying signs that maybe said Jack Lynch attended the funeral of the King of Denmark, maybe, and he didn't at- attend mm-hmm. the funerals in Derry. How did the funerals themselves play out in the south? You know, I think you mentioned them been broadcast yeah. in different aspects. They were broadcast live by RTE. Uh, Donica Dooling and Kevin O'Kelly provided coverage. Um, the funerals were a huge occasion, obviously. And there had been calls for Jack Lynch as Taoiseach and Eamon de Valera as president to attend them. And neither of them did. You did have both a really big turnout from the Republic. Um, not just from Donegal and Sligo and Leitrim and, and, and those areas, but also from much further south. I mean, people came from Cork and Limerick and Dublin to the funerals. Um, you had um, nine Lord Mayors, five government ministers and around 40 TDs or senators who went. And again, quite a cross section. So you had people like Brian Lenhan from Fianna Fáil, who was a minister at the time, went. Niall Andrews of Fianna Fáil. Again, there's a, a family tragedy there because his brother was travelling up from Limerick, was killed in a car accident. Um, on that day um, you also Charlie Hoy attended from Fianna Fáil Bobby Malloy from Fianna Fáil Gareth Fitzgerald from Fine Gael T.F. O'Higgins Fine Gael Paddy Donegan from, from Fine Gael as well um, and a number of others Michael O'Leary and Brendan Corish of Labour and a number of other people from that party's uh, Eurocktus group as well um, and the President of the GAA Pat Fanning President of the Irish Farmers Association also attended um, but thousands of ordinary citizens travelled to Derry as well from from the Republic you know from in considerable distances in, in in some cases and the funerals were obviously you know a huge occasion but there were religious services taking place on the day across the Republic including in Dublin the pro-cathedral Jack Lynch and Liam Cosgrave went to a special service in the pro-cathedral which was officiated by the Archbishop of Dublin and then you also had in Christchurch a church, special church of Ireland service. There was 2,000 people there, including the Taunashta Erskine Childers. And what's also noticeable on the day of mourning, and maybe we can come back to it, is that in most local areas, protests revolved around Requiem Mass. People either marched to Mass or marched from Mass. Um, and there were special Masses in every town and I would say almost every village. And, and also, in many cases, special Church of Ireland Presbyterian Methodist services in Dublin and Cork, special services in the city synagogues as well. So again, there's, on the day of mourning, everyone who's religious in Ireland, and most people were practising at the time, um, a lot of the focus is on some kind of religious observance. And a lot of the unions and organisations like the Gardaí, for example, they also had their own special masses on the day. And in fairness to Lynch and uh, President de Valera at the time, not travelling, would that have been out of deference to the British government and maybe they didn't want to escalate the situation and I think was it the previous summer Paddy Hillary had travelled to the Falls Road during the curfew and that caused trouble would that have been the thinking or did they ever come up with a reason why they didn't travel I'm not aware of, of an explanation I mean I think Lynch's I mean I'm, I'm more interested in many ways in the popular yeah. response you know but at Lynch's 
deference to Ted Heath even on the night of Bloody Sunday and it's been you know widely publicised where he apologised for ringing him at that hour it's quite it's shocking in one sense you know that you would have thought that on any occasion a stronger response would have been required um, so you know I don't know why mm. he didn't go um, but you know in the general mood of protest certainly Republicans and Radicals would have been said Lynch is not doing enough but a lot of people um, see Bloody Sunday as a terrible human tragedy. They're not necessarily, I suppose this is trying to, to uncover the reasons why people do the things they do. You know, for them going to Mass on the National Day of Mourning, taking time off work, maybe going to a local march, is the extent of their protesting as well. They're not necessarily thinking of pushing it any further. So it's quite, you know, um, when you look at the, the way that people, popular memory remembers the burning of the embassy, yeah. you know. But that's not the only thing that's going on. And in fact, of course, it's it's only a factor in very widespread protest and mourning. Yeah. So you linked in nicely there in terms of the burning of the British Embassy. It is the thing that is remembered in popular memory. It, the myth has grown up around it. And it's probably not fair to... Uh, it's probably not fair to judge some of those people who've propagated that myth. Bertie Hearn is someone there who would have said, I was at the... British Embassy, um, when it burnt down, the guards basically stood by and let this happen. And again, you, you, you've hear, heard that frequently repeated, and that is the myth. Is that is that fair? Is that true? I think I've hit on it in my work, but I think you've got a lot more detail than I have. What exactly happened, and how true was this myth of the guards standing by and letting the, Brit- or letting the crowd burn down the British Embassy? Well, see, the thing is that I suppose when the shorthand is after Bloody Sunday, people in Dublin burnt the British Embassy. And you get the impression then they must have burnt it that night. It was burnt three days later. It was burnt on the National Day morning. And there'd been three days of protest before that. And there had been serious attempts made on the Monday and Tuesday to attack the embassy. And they'd been repelled by the Gardaí. So, you know, whatever about the behaviour of the Gardaí on the day, and there is an urban myth um, that the Gardaí stood by and let it happen. And we can maybe talk about that. Certainly on the Monday and Tuesday, they'd defended the embassy and they'd suffered injuries in the process and they'd bat and charged crowds on dozens of occasions, you know, while defending the embassy. But on the, the night itself, on that night, there's actually very little happens at the embassy. A small group of people hold a picket and a couple of young women hold a, vig- a vigil. And again, it's on Monday morning as the nationwide protest starts to emerge. In Dublin, there's also walkouts and strikes. And you've got school students from secondary schools, including from, for example, the high school in Ratgar, which would have been a Church of Ireland school. Um, school students coming in, walking out of class. Students from uni- from UCD and Trinity and, and from other colleges coming down to Merrion Square to where the British Embassy was. So we should say that, that it's in the centre of Dublin. It's in Merrion Square. It's not far from Leinster House. It's not far from Grafton Street. Um, four steps up to the embassy. It's not sealed off. It had reinforced windows, but it's not in many ways, a very secure building um, at the time. And then you have strikes and walkouts, car assembly workers in Ballyfermot, when we had car assembly plants in, in Dublin, um, foundry workers from Hammond Lane, ESB workers and so on begin to march. And by lunchtime on the Monday, there's a few thousand people in Merrion Square. Um, their Gardaí are reinforced, but the Gardaí are saying, yeah, there's a lot of anger. There's coins, bottles occasionally being thrown but mostly the crowd are fairly good-humoured, if angry. That evening, official Sinn Féin, the official Republicans, have a rally at the embassy. Several thousand people come to that. The crowd are addressed by Tomás Megilla, 
um, and, and by Seamus Costello. Seamus Costello then says notice to quit is being served on, on, on this building and there's a sustained attack with petrol bombs, rockets and flares which the Gardaí managed to hold off and there's people injured on both sides in the process. The officials make the first attempt so to speak again with lots of, of non-involved people in the crowd as well. Then a march arrives from the general post office where the provisionals have been holding a rally. As the Gardaí say arrives in a very violent mood. On the way the British airline offices which are BOAC at the time in Grafton Street are firebombed uh, on the way up towards Merrion Square. That crowd then makes an attempt to attack the embassy as well. So there's bottles and stones thrown, petrol bombs. But by about 11 that night, the area is calm. Gardaí have held a line. As far as they're concerned, the trouble has passed. Again, their assessment is, you know, a lot of people trying to get at the embassy, but lots of people basically watching. And not all of them in favour of the attacks on, on our men either. Um, again, as you've pointed out in your book, as people probably won't know now because the public order unit looks pretty formidable when they turn up at protest these days 1972 the Gardaí didn't have any riot gear in Merrion Square they just had their overcoats and 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 battens essentially so um the embassy isn't in many ways a very formidable building and it's not protected by a vast force on the Monday but it isn't burnt down mm. Tuesday morning protests start again there's more strikes and walkouts in Dublin You've, had, you've got rallies all day, so you've got, again, school students, um, university students, different groups of workers, different trade unionists. And, of course, again, by the evening, crowds are getting bigger, other people coming from work. And there's an attempt made on the Tuesday to really attack the embassy. Uh, truck is driven at guard lines, but they managed to tear the driver out of the truck and disable it. And around 11pm, late on at night, and it's raining as well, pretty bad weather, there's a gelignite bomb thrown at the embassy door. There's actually YouTube footage of that. I think Pathé Newsreel or somebody like that. And somebody essentially approached the Gardaí and said, there's a bomb coming. So you can see that people are getting out of the way. The guards thought that that was probably the signal for a big assault, but that didn't happen for whatever reason. So the door of the embassy is damaged. Um, people are injured in the fighting. But again, the embassy isn't burnt. Now, unknown to most people, the British Embassy have decided to vacate their staff and take their documents and so on. And they'd have been protected by armed uh, special branch detectives as well. Now they say to the Irish government on the Tuesday night, obviously tomorrow there's going to be a demonstration here. Dublin Trades Council, the trade unions had called for a demonstration after three o'clock in Dublin on the National Day morning. So as well as all the different masses and, and local protests there was going to be a big march in Dublin that was going to go to Merrion Square so everybody knew on the National Day morning there's going to be another march to the embassy anyway now the British said to the Irish government we don't think your police are going to be able to ensure the the safety of the building so we would ask you to um, bring in your defence forces and the Irish embassy in London are also approached by the British government about the use of the Irish army to defend the British embassy. Um, the Irish government consider this, and it's another story, but they don't. They decide not to not to take that step. But everybody knows there's going to be a lot of protests on the Wednesday. And it's ultimately on the Wednesday, after a day of protest, that the embassy is destroyed. But again, it's not straightforward because you have demonstrations at the embassy all day. At lunchtime, you have uh, telephonists, or mostly women, who kneel down and say the rosary. And lots of the protesters and the Gardaí 
who are uh, guarding the embassy also say the rosary as well. About 500 guardy on duty by this point, including all the senior officers in Dublin and reinforcements as well. Um, fire brigade on standby. You've had crowds gathering all day. Ultimately, then the Trades Council march arrives, led by the Irish Transport Union Band. They come into Merrion Square. Now, the Guardies' private estimate is that there's 50,000 people and they, they judge it in some particular way of person per square foot or something. Other people say there was 100,000. Certainly Merrion Square, if you know the geography of it, all corners of the square were packed. And the railings of the little park there were actually torn up. People spilled into the park itself. And from about three or four o'clock, the crowds are right on top of the Garda lines and they're pushing and pushing and pushing and people begin to throw stones and bottles and begin to demand that the embassy be destroyed. And again, for about an hour, the crowd is held back from the embassy. Um, the Garda decide against even attempting a baton charge at this stage because, you know, I'm sure from their own personal point of view, a lot of them would have been injured given the how big the crowd was and also they wouldn't have probably even been able to charge given how thick the numbers of people. People who are at the front are being hit by bottles and stones and even petrol bombs that are being thrown from people behind them. So people are trying to petrol bomb it. The Gardaí have told garages not to sell petrol and all the rest but at that stage, you know, obviously people had tried to make um, arrangements for various materials to be brought in. And then you have this very... Um, again there's television footage of this very bizarre sequence where people climb up on the balconies of other buildings in Merrion Square and begin to make their way balcony by balcony until they get to the embassy and a lot of the windows of the embassy had been smashed and one of the people who's managed to come across um, who's being cheered on by the crowd and people are singing for he's a jolly good fellow and things like this he smashes again part of the window with a hammer or a hatchet and people begin to throw petrol bombs up and ultimately, you begin to see from within the embassy, flames begin to spread. But it takes, you know, quite a while for the fire to get going. So Dublin Fire Brigade's response, and, and I've spoken to a person who was a fireman at the time, and, and there were actually quite a few Republicans working in the fire service. They weren't very keen on putting out the fire. Now, they were also obstructed by the crowd because as soon as firemen arrived, people began to, you know, tell them that they couldn't put out the fire. The Gardaí complained that the fire brigade said to them they would fight the fire if it spread to other houses, but they weren't going to put out the fire in the embassy itself. So you really have a combination of huge crowd, lots of tacit approval for the burning of the embassy, even if a lot of them aren't, probably wouldn't have even been capable of, of doing it if they were asked, but they're, you know, they'll cheer on somebody who does. People who have come prepared to try and burn it if they get the chance. But I suppose the interesting thing is that it happens after three days. It doesn't happen on the night of Bloody Sunday itself. And also the British ambassador is very clear, both publicly and privately, that the Gardaí did their best. He, you know, privately writes to the Garda commissioner saying your men stood up bravely to huge odds. And in his own uh, book about his time as an ambassador, he says there was a really erroneous impression in Britain that the Irish had stood by. Nothing could have been further from the truth. And the guards suffer about, I think about 24 of them are hospitalised. Um, some with relatively serious injuries and a lot of them suffer fairly minor injuries. Now, I'm sure, given the mood of the country, uh, that a lot of Gardaí were just as angry and didn't really care. But you also have a situation where if they're asked to do something, it's, you know, some of the stories that they stood there laughing or that they actually were cheering. Not if you've had bricks and stones or bottles thrown at you. Not if people have been calling you, you know, SSRUC or, you know, you know, demanding you get out of the way. So I think actually, you know, you also have the fact is that 
if, if there's been two or three days and another problem mm. is that of course they're not getting leave so the guard he complained a lot of their men are exhausted by this stage if you've had two or three days of clashes at the embassy they're going to you know you're going to see these people as your adversary so I think you know in real terms without huge amounts of men and equipment they weren't going to be able to stop the burning and ultimately then in many ways people have mythologized it as an event in which you know who would have tried to stop it but that's not quite how it worked yeah, it's interesting too that the, the way you're framing it, the, the response of the individual Gardaí protesting the situation, seeing the crowd as their adversaries, whereas their initial response to Bloody Sunday might have been very sympathetic to the protesters in Derry and those that were killed. After possibly a week of policing protests, their attitude towards Republicans in particular might have changed. Like I heard, I was speaking to one Garda who was on duty in Cork at the time, and he gave an account of while he was there, they were out placing all day and they were sharing a flat with the communal bathroom and they went into the toilets the next day and there was a group of nurses. They were in the same building and on, on the mirrors was written pigs out. Mm-hmm. You know, so the this was obviously there was a tension building between Gardaí and the local community. Yeah, I mean I think the in in a lot of the local protests and on the day of mourning itself, you see guards being involved, you know, guards who are off duty taking part in the marches guards reading lessons at mass for example but in the towns and, and in the cities for example as well where you might you know say that you might have had a, a, a level of tension between young people and Gardaí so in Limerick for example on the Monday there's fairly peaceful protests but somebody throws a bottle into a guard station and hits a guard you know uh, in Cork on the Thursday the day after the embassy is burnt there's a march of mainly young protesters to the British Rail Office and that ends up in running battles with Gardaí so again, it would differ from place to place and the attitudes of those being policed would, would probably differ too. But I suppose the interesting thing is on after the embassy is burnt on that night, lots of the people leave. The provisionals ask people to come to Mount Joy and protest there and demand that Republican prisoners be released. So several thousand people go up there. But the officials bring people back to Merrion Square and the British passport office, which was a few doors down from the embassy, is firebombed. But at this point, the Gardaí who've been reinforced... Um, and there's a much smaller crowd of protesters they do carry out a big baton charge and there's quite serious fighting around Marion Square and Grafton Street lots of shop windows smashed cars overturned and lots of people injured so in many ways the Gardaí get their chance with a much smaller crowd later on in the night and, and disperse that crowd pretty brutally so again you know there's so many other stories happening and you could have gone to Marion Square at one o'clock or two o'clock or three o'clock and protested and felt you'd done your bit and gone home and missed the burning of the embassy which happens a little bit later on again it's one of those occasions like the gpo in 1916 where i've met hundreds of people who've told me they were there and, and i think some of them were but you know it's it and it's, i suppose and it's a broader point about popular memory and incidents yeah. like no disrespect to bertie Ahern, that is his memory of mm. it of the guard stanton bay is probably 100 percent accurate in his head mm. but it shows you the difficulty of sometimes accepting oral history. And Bertie had bit, has had a bit of a problem with memories though, hasn't he? <laughs> might, maybe better move on. To yeah, else. we might move on there. Now, aside from the British Embassy and the Passport Office, there were other sort of targets that the British, you know, of, of the British establishment or the British state in Ireland. Where else was targeted? Well, you obviously had businesses. So British Rail had offices 
in, in, in the Republic in the early 70s. And there's a lot of protests at those and, and the windows of British Rail offices are smashed. Yeah, excuse so me, ignorance. Why were British Rail have offices in, in, in Ireland at the time? Well, at the time you would have, you know, if you were booking, I think, a ticket for a bus or a rail holiday in Britain, you could have gone to the British Rail offices in Cork or Limerick and got your ticket for then. And then it, it became British Rail once right. you, you landed on, on British soil, so right. to speak. Um, you had the British Airways offices in Dublin that was that was targeted as well. People might be surprised, of course, the Royal Air Force had a club in Dublin for its veterans, which closed down after 1972. That's petrol-bombed as well. British Legion Hall is obviously an obvious target because there were several of them in different parts of, of the Republic as well. And then maybe things that are, the connection is a bit more tenuous, like Austin Reed's Outfitters in Grafton Street, which is a British-owned business, <laughs> but that's the reason why it's attacked, but it's not part of the British establishment as such. So... You know, anything that had a connection to Britain was going to be protested outside. And in the context of the time, you have quite a lot of arson attacks and, and bomb attacks on those buildings. And there was also the, the traditional, I suppose, Irish strategy of the boycott was, I suppose, a century old at mm. the time. And there was calls for a boycott at the time. You had newspapers boycotted, British planes boycotted. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, there's a, I suppose there's a few different aspects of it. One is the trade union aspect where... Uh, telephonists and airport workers and rail workers and so on and, and port workers refused to handle British goods or deal with British telephone calls again because to make a, a call outside Ireland at the time there was a whole process you had to go through so calls from Britain are blacked British aircraft are blacked at Dublin Airport and Cork Airport and Shannon and so on uh, British goods are blacked for a period and then you've calls for all kinds of other boycotts so of course you have a general call to boycott everything British now given that a huge amount of our trade was with Britain in reality that would have been a pretty extensive boycott but you know the obvious thing is news agents take British magazines and newspapers off their shelves for a couple of days in Navin Vintners call for a boycott of British whiskies and so on you know for example as well um, and there's a general call from some people to carry this on you know to make this an economic war to make the British realise that we will not buy their goods while they're shooting our people. Um, within a fairly short space of time, people are you know saying that this won't work. We've got too many important economic links with Britain. Newspapers go back on the shelves. The telephonists start reconnecting the calls. Airplanes start to get you know um, be maintained or you know, be, be traffic is dealt with again. So the boycott lasts for as long as the protest movement, really, although there are calls to extend it. But then you begin to see, which we might talk about pretty quickly, people begin to worry about where this, all these protests might end up. Yeah, and the week after Bloody Sunday, if we go on to, there was another civil rights march scheduled for Newry. And I think at one point there were calls for large numbers from the south to converge on the border and... Um, for that march on the Sunday, it ended without any um, casualties or any fatalities, would you? Just that march on the Sunday, the atmosphere on it, the numbers that travelled from the south, were people from the south discouraged in any way from travelling? Yeah, the well, the, the, the Newry march was, again, one of the big marches against internment that had been banned. And, of course, after Bloody Sunday, the worry was that if the British government were going to continue the same policy as, as they seem to have employed in Derry, people could be killed in Newry as well. So there were calls then for people to go to Newry and make it a huge march. The Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association uh, started to worry and they said that people from the Republic shouldn't come, that it should just be people from the North itself. Uh, Ivan Cooper, who is an SDLP 
representative at the time. He called on the Irish army to move up to the border and be ready to move in if the British army attacked uh, the, the Newry March, which again, is, the implications that would be pretty pretty big. And again, that fact that he's a mainstream politician mm. is gives you a sense of the, the mood of the time. On the day itself, something like 40 or 50,000 people marched in Newry. It's often forgotten because people think March has ended after Bloody Sunday. I mean, this was a huge march. Um, and you had representatives come from Britain uh, as well and the world's television cameras and press were there. Nothing happens. British Army watch the march, but they don't intervene. And maybe ten to 15,000 people come from the Republic. So again, you've got people from the border areas, but also people come by bus and train to Dundalk and then walk across the border. So you've got like hundreds of people walking up across the border, including again some... Um, TDs uh, and senators. You also then have people from as far south as uh, County Limerick. The some workers from the cement factory in Mungert drive up for the the the, the march in Newry. So you've got, you know, again, big displays of solidarity and smaller marches in Dublin, um, in Dunleary and a few other places in solidarity with Newry, and in Castlebar a march of ten thousand people. They have their their day of mourning on the Sunday, and it's regarded as the biggest. Uh, march in Castlebar since the days of the Land League. I should have said actually that on the day of mourning itself, you've got marches and protests across the state, and some of these are very, very big. Uh, they probably haven't been matched since in terms of the numbers that turn out in Sligo and Athlone and and so on. You know, almost every place sees some kind of of public rally on that day. Yeah. Now, if we switch to you spoke there about the potential for having the Irish Army ready in Dundalk for the day of the Newry March and if we think of the attitudes within the Irish security forces at the time we've spoken about how attitudes were sort of gradually moving and how the protests sort of affected maybe the attitude of the security forces towards republicans and towards protesters but there was also a certain amount of sympathy among the Irish security forces for the republican analysis at the time I think there was one Garda down in Cork was charged in connection with um, an attempt to provide explosives to Republicans. Um, Thomas McNulty, the Republican, he wrote a very interesting book called Exiled on the period, and he spoke about how a Garda patrol car wished him and a group of men at the border who were preparing an ambush well and hoped that they set up a set up a, a bomb for to get the British Army in response to Bloody Sunday, and this was coming from Gardaí on duty at the border. Have you come up with much material on that on possible Garda support or Irish army republican sentiment at the time I think there's there's no doubt that in the immediate aftermath of, of Bloody Sunday the idea of violence against the British forces wasn't unpopular you know all kinds of people make speeches and say things at council meetings and at, on the day of mourning you know which infers that the IRA were right all along or that you know we should never have given up in 1921 or that, you know, this for 800 years, you know, you look at the coverage in local papers, I think the Sligo champion says the South is in the mood for violence. You know, the world sees now that Britain only stand, understands the language of the gun. So in that context, I think it's quite possible that Gardaí and soldiers would have turned a blind eye to the IRA north of the border. There's also a strong sense very quickly, though, that things can get out of control here. You see in the Irish press, for example, an interesting editorial, which would have been the popular Republican paper. It would have been one that was read by Fianna Fáil supporters and, and by people you can, 
you know, mm. assume who might be sympathetic to the Republican point of view. You know, that says that everyone is rightly angry. The nationalist population are up in arms. Um, I think it says something like every able-bodied young man, young man in the north, by nationalist man they mean, um, is probably going to join the IRA now. Could be looking at the end of partition. But the burning of the embassy is appalling. And what happened afterwards with attacks on Gardaí and shops is terrible. Are there people who want anarchy down here as well? Anarchy in this state will not help the nationalist minority. So there's one view that says, you know, we've got to maintain our unity here and therefore don't push this thing too far. And then you also have another strand of opinion, which probably is fairly widespread, um, which <clears throat> worries about, you know, the economic implications, the political implications for our relationship with Britain and our proposed uh, entry into the European Economic Community. There's a woman from South Dublin writes to Gareth Fitzgerald um, just after the burning of the embassy and says, you know, my main concern is my family, my friends' families, and we feel sorry for the people in the North, but sometimes we wish they were let on, let get on with their own destruction. You know, and she says, because really it's, it's not what, you know, what we saw in Dublin last night with attacks on our own police and so on. That's just going to lead down the road to, to civil war. So you have people who are radicalised and angered by what had happened. And you have also people who start to get afraid. And probably a lot of people feel both emotions in, in that week. Yeah. And that, that it, it's, it's very, it's quite dramatic anyway, the change in the mood. Like the Fianna Fáil party would always be very good at gauging the sentiment of popular opinion. And I think it was about three weeks after... And bloody Sunday they held their Ardesh and it was noted for, I suppose, the key speakers. Their main enemy on the day was the Republican movement and the IRA rather than, you know, gung-ho anti-British speeches, which were the order of the day in 1971. Like, um, there was the quote from FSL Lyons after Bloody Sunday that we had a mood approaching 1916-like. And again, you know, a, a quite a conservative man in his views. So to, for him, with his knowledge of Irish history to think that this was comparable with 1916 and three weeks later we had the Fianna Fáil party as the Republican party just two years previously some of their ministers were attempting to import arms allegedly expressing very very anti-republican views what happened in that intervening period was it just the burning of the British embassy was there other issues well I think the the burning of the embassy certainly concentrates minds at official level although again publicly a lot of TDs in the Dáil the next day say that they shed no tears for it. And Des O'Malley, the Minister for Justice, says, you know, that the embassy could only have been preserved with great loss of life. And this government has more respect for human life than another government in this part of the world. So again, it's it's interesting that it's framed in that way. But privately, I think John O'Leary, the Kerry Fianna Fáil PD, says, one minister said, if they're capable of burning the British embassy, they're capable of burning Leinster House. So I think, you know, privately, they would have felt that this was, was quite a dangerous development. Um, now, how much they could tell, I'm sure, again, with an organisation like Fianna Fáil, um, with quite strong roots in the community at the time, they'd be hearing from their own local organisations how much of this is passing anger and how much is really, do they really want us to do something dramatic like, you know, um, go to the aid of, of Northern Nationalists, which, you know, people were calling foreign platforms and so on. There's a number of things happen with, in some senses, even though it's a cliche, Des O'Malley uses it, you know, he says essentially the emotions burnt themselves out in with the flames of the building. Certainly there is a sense that once the embassy has been burnt, that people have made their point. 
you get people writing, you know, to politicians saying that um, I don't regret it at all. I'm prepared to pay for the damage through my taxes. It had to be done. But that's it. You know, we've made our point now. There's not anything else we're, we're going to do. Um, lots of people talking about that. There's no need for a war now. You know, the, the British government are going to have to do something dramatic in the north. Ultimately, again, of course, they, the abolition of Stormont is seen as that dramatic step, which happens a little bit later on. And then you also have the impact of the, the Aldershot bomb. Um, the official IRA bombed the headquarters of the Parachute Regiment, killed seven people, six of whom are, are, are civilians, five of whom are, are cleaning women. That has a very big impact. Again, people may, 40 years later, think, well, lots of terrible things happened in the North. But up to that point, Republicans hadn't admitted anything that bad. You know, there had been people killed in various bombs, but it hadn't been talked about as much. So you get a sense in a lot of the coverage that we had the high moral ground. The Irish on the world stage were able to say to the British, you've murdered our people and now we've lost the high moral ground. And you see a lot of um, anger and antagonism towards initially the official IRA um, and then also to every paramilitary. And at the Fianna Fáil Ardesh, Des O'Malley again makes a speech where he says, we're coming close to the unity of Ireland. We're coming for the first time since the 1920s. We're looking at the end of partition. But the only thing that's propping the Unionists and the British up now is the activities of these paramilitary groups who don't have any mandate from the people here. So you see very much being stressed that the IRA doesn't have any role to play in the Republic. So I think it would be possible to have that kind of schizophrenia. You certainly see it in the Irish press a lot where the IRA in the North are understandable and perhaps justified. But anything that happens across the border is not and anything that they do in our name elsewhere, particularly if it's something like Aldershot, is not either. So what Fianna Fáil tend to stress is the security of the Republic. And you can be in favour of that. I mean, it's it's one of the, I think the British, as you know, they're often quite perceptive. You know, they say nationalist struggles in the North are one thing, but the stability of the Southern state is another. And Southerners are prepared to, on the one hand, you know, be really angry at what the Unionists or the British will do in the North and at the same time tolerate all kinds of security measures against the IRA in the South. So I think all those things are at play. I mean, it's by no means, certainly Republicans would have still had a, a big, big groundswell of, of sympathy and their own organisations would have been able to, 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 to utilise that. But the public mood does cool. And as the year goes on, becomes less and less enthused with the violence in the North. But within the space of a few weeks, you do see, and I think Aldershot is big in people's minds as an event which takes away our moral high ground. Yeah. So the Aldershot bombing was at the paratroop base and mm. it was four, five cleaning ladies killed in it. Yeah. Just on that, on the official reaction, the uh, reaction of the official IRA versus the provisional IRA, the provisional IRA at the point possibly by the southern state wouldn't have been seen as a as great a threat and even by the northern state may not have been seen as as great a threat as the official ira was there any discernible difference between their reaction at street level down this in the south whereby the provisionals would have been possibly less inclined to activity down this in the republic whereas the officials might have been more inclined to activity would that be fair well i think i think at ground level actually there's relatively little difference in the way they respond in the days after Bloody Sunday and that 
where both organisations are strong enough, they appear on the streets openly. So in Galway on the Monday, there's a big protest in Air Square and official IRM members fire shots in the air. After the big rally in Waterford on the day of mourning, both the local provisional and official IRAs have a combined firing party as well. And in various places where they'd have a local organisation, you might have a speaker from the provisionals or a speaker from the officials. In theory, though, there is supposed to be a difference in that the provisionals were very clear that they weren't supposed to take offensive action against the southern state. And surprisingly, maybe, you have people like Joe Cahill being praised in the press for trying to calm things down at the embassy on the Monday. So, for example, Joe Cahill tells the papers, you know, we have not, we don't want conflict with the Gardaí. We would rather they get out of the way and let the crowd deal with the embassy. Whereas Tony Heffernan of the officials strikes a more militant line, you know, the Gardaí batten people and the people fought back as best they could. Now, in reality, members of the IRA are involved in all those protests and a lot of the firebombings and the arson attacks are obviously being carried out by IRA members and the provisionals are making fairly sustained attacks on the embassy as well, whatever their their um, line in, in public might have been. But the on the day itself, and the official IRA are certainly involved in trying to burn it on the Wednesday. Um, Sean McStephon, in the provisional chief of staff at the time, gave an interview to a student in UCD years later, where he said he ordered his men to pull back and let the citizens of Dublin burn the building. Now, I think in reality, members of both IRA organisations and of Serera, you know, the Republican paramilitary group and, and all kinds of other people are involved in violent activities in the day after Bloody Sunday. But publicly, the provisionals do say that they do not want to take offensive action in the, in the South and that they don't want conflict with the, the Gardaí. The officials, by that stage, although they, they never you know, vocalised it, seem much less concerned about confrontation with the southern state and that's the way they're perceived too so for example they tend to come in for a lot of condemnation from the irish press for example which suggests that they're the ones who are looking for trouble in the south um but again at a local level people would have just often seen these guys as the ira or as republicans and both of them are trying to recruit and they do recruit but it's interesting that in the uh the book Southside provisional that was published uh, a couple of years ago. Kieran Conway's Kieran Conway's book. He said that after Bloody Sunday, the provisionals in Dublin had about 400 applications and that when he came back to intelligence after some years, he got the list and it had never been acted on. You know, So would that give you an impression, obviously, of the practical steps that people might have taken? And indeed, one of the newspaper reports of the Monday after the... Um, the day after Bloody Sunday in Merrion Square was that you had people going around looking for, asking journalists, how do I contact the IRA? So of course there's an upsurge, which both organisations probably benefit from in terms of membership and support. But... They hadn't got the capacity to handle... No, they, they actually didn't. I mean, it takes them by surprise. And, and what you do have then for the next 20 years is people you know, talking about the great missed opportunity and, you know, this could have been the point where Joe Cahill in his um, book about Joe Cahill says, if we'd enough, if we'd had a little bit more political support, we could have taken over the country, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea again as Bloody Sunday as the great missed opportunity, the moment when really we're on the verge of, of if not revolution, at least people coming together, the nation on the march 
to finally drive the British out. I think it was it was more complicated than that at the time as well, but certainly Republicans are benefiting from the, the mood. Now, there was also some reports of some sectarian incidents at the time and anti-British or anti-English incidents. Could you elaborate on that a little? Well, there is uh, quite a few sectarian incidents and also incidents where British or English or other people are, are targeted. Um, there isn't any evidence that it's Republicans who target them. But what you do have, again, is that in this kind of wave of anger, you know, where there isn't an obvious target sometimes, you have ordinary British people receiving abuse or, in some cases, telephone threats, for example, and people being told to get out. So there's a lot of coverage, ultimately, in the press of the fact that, you know, people from English people living in Clare or English people living in Cork have been told to get out. You have holiday homes in Kerry burnt out that are owned by, I think, retired military officers. You've got threats addressed to British firms, obviously, and British companies. And then you also have incidences where Irish Protestants are targeted. And I suppose that's in some ways revealing. Now, it's, it's limited. It doesn't happen in most places and it's widely condemned. But on, on the morning of the day of mourning in Newbridge, County Kildare, for example, uh, the local... Anglican Church is daubed with anti-Protestant and anti-British slogans as are shops in the town owned by Protestants. Shots are fired in the vicinity of Protestant-owned farms in Wexford. You've got telephone threats or written threats to Protestants in West Cork. You've got incidents in the border areas as well. Um, Petrol bomb attack on a Presbyterian church in, in St. Johnston and Donegal. And that reflects, of course, that for some people, the British have committed a massacre in Ireland. Who's to blame for that? Well, the Unionists are the British. Who are the Unionists? The Unionists are Protestants. Because these attacks are condemned very quickly. In Newbridge, for example, that morning, local people come out and paint over the graffiti. At a lot of the rallies, you have people who denounce attacks on Protestants. And it's also, as I mentioned, in most areas, there's special Church of Ireland or Methodist Presbyterian services. On a lot of the platforms in Waterford, for example, you've got everyone from the Society of Friends, Presbyterians, Methodists, Church of Ireland on the, the protest platform. So Southern Protestants are associated in many cases with and protests. Republicans would always be very sensitive about this and you would usually see after such an incident, a week after, condemnation from local Republican leaders and, you know, veiled threats against anyone mm -hmm. carrying out sectarian attacks. You, you'd see that in the local papers as well. Yeah, and you do see it. You do see it in... A, in, in in Clare, for example, the provisional IRA issue a statement saying that English people or British people who've lived in the region have always been welcomed there and that they'll, you know, they're not responsible for any threats against them and they'll take action against those who are using their name um, in, in the course of these threats. You also have denunciation of sectarian attacks from Republicans in different parts of the country as well. But it, it's all part of, you have this kind of wave of protest, which is often very orderly often very uh, moderate in many ways, although it's very angry, but also revolves around a requiem mass, a protest rally in the town, then people go home essentially. Um, but then incidents of windows being smashed or attacks on shops, or even then threats directed against an English person who's living in the locality or an Irish Protestant, because they're in some ways perceived as being connected to unionism or to, or to the British. 
And that's one of the reasons why in the aftermath of the protest movement, you begin to see recriminations at local councils where people talk about the damage that was done. Or in Clonus, for example, in Monaghan, you have people saying that actually a lot of local Protestants felt intimidated during those protests. Um, who were the people patrolling the town? Who were the people who had the right to demand this day of action? Um, and in areas where you had maybe an orange tradition or a higher uh, density of Protestant population, particularly closer to the border, you can actually see that there were quite a few people who probably weren't in tune with the, the mood of protest, but that didn't really talk about it at the time. But you begin to see recriminations in, in the weeks that, that go on. And you can imagine you spoke about uh, a mother writing to Garth Fitzgerald, was it? Mm-hmm. And you, you spoke about that earlier. You can imagine the mummies of Ireland seeing all these incidents, seeing the shots been fired on the street of Waterford. You can see the burning of the British Embassy, maybe the local guard coming into conflict with local people and the mummies of Ireland sort of saying, here, we need to sort of stay away from this and influence and opinion and this having a broader effect on people in the South sort of saying, we've seen the way the North has gradually went from a few minor street incidents to what was all out conflict by 1972, the worst year of the Troubles. Um, and people in the South had observed minor street disturbances turning into a very, very bloody conflict. The lasting impact of this bloody, the, the lasting impact of this response to Bloody Sunday in the South, what was it? I think it's, at one level, I think people remember it as a turning point because it's the last big moment when the South was united or almost united in sympathy with Northern nationalists. Um, whatever about the, the nitty gritty of what went on over those days, when you look at the sheer volume of protest and the numbers of people involved, at, as I say, really, you know, in every locality, there's some form of protest or some form of, of demonstration in solidarity with the victims. Um, you don't ever get that again. I mean, there is nothing that compares to it. Um, and in one way, it's, it's, it's very emotional, but it's not very political. So it's possible for people of all kinds of political views to take part in these protests and not really probably change their mind that much then about politics. I mean, you could look at it in one way, and I think a lot of radicals did for a while and think, God, how, you know, the, 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 the people were on the streets, the embassy was burnt, this was really, you know, we're on the verge of revolution. But an, an, a huge percentage of those people were not in any way intent on doing anything else other than showing disapproval of what the paratroopers had done in Derry. They weren't, you know, they weren't angry at Jack Lynch. You know, there's lots of people, placards and people denouncing him um, because they tend to be the people who are going to be vocal at protests. But a big chunk of the people there would have been Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael or, or Labour voters who wouldn't have been particularly, you know, necessarily drawn any other political conclusions other than that the British are bad and that the British better do something about this now. And yes, hopefully maybe there'll be a United Ireland and all this trouble will cease. But once these other questions start to emerge, you know, within a very short period, is there going to be a civil war in the North? What are the loyalists going to do? Um, what are the IRA going to do now? I think they, they're always going to be troubled by those questions. So it's a, a protest movement, an emotional reaction, not necessarily an enormously political reaction. I suppose it was pointed out to me uh, a long time ago when I was speaking to somebody from Waterford who was... Um, a trade unionist in the glass factory there who 
had been involved in the H-Block protests as well, which are much smaller now. They're not at all on the same level. And there had been some stoppages after Bobby Sands' death, including in Waterford Glass. And I was comparing it to Bloody Sunday, and he said, look, it's completely different. He said, after Bloody Sunday, everyone in Waterford, from the Lord Mayor to the managers of all the factories, were on the streets. You know, the H-Block thing was much more political. So I think the H-Block movement is a lot smaller you know, and the numbers are never anti approaching the ones that come out after Bloody Sunday, is probably a lot more political because it's a lot more unpopular with mainstream Ireland. Mainstream Ireland are on the streets after Bloody Sunday. You know, you don't have, you know, there, there are people, of course, who disapprove of the whole protests and who, you know, there, there probably are people who privately think the British are, are justified, but that's not at all in any kind of public consciousness. There's just this rage and anger and sorrow. And that really encapsulates the mood of the South. Um, but that's not very deeply political, I don't think. Yeah. It's fascinating. And uh, you brought it up before I was going to was the comparison with 1981. You were at a very different stage in the Troubles at that stage. And to my mind, that's the fundamental difference. 1972, and you alluded to this yourself, um, IRA actions against British forces were quite limited. The provisional IRA was not the significant force that it grew into. The official IRA seemed to be changing tact to a more political direction. It was such a pivotal moment. And I suppose at that stage in the Troubles, Bloody Sunday, the British government, the British state was seen as the primary aggressor in the situation from a southern perspective. Whereas when you go forward to 1981, you'd had a conflict that went, at that stage, going 13 years. There had been atrocities on all sides. And people in the South had sort of just said, a lot, a large pop, section of the population in the South said, we want nothing to do with this conflict. Whereas there were people um, radicalised in 1981, but you were going out of a very small pool and a different age demographic. So for... A certain age demographic that came of age, perhaps 1981, there was a comparison in their mind because maybe people of their age, their generation, their social class, all had the same reaction in 1981. Is it, Would that be a fair enough comparison? Yeah, I suppose I wouldn't even, I, I wouldn't attempt it to analyse it, the hunger strikes, too deeply because I'm not, not an expert on them. But I think by that stage, you did have one... Among the general public, a war weariness and a sense of that they're all as bad as each other. And we can debate all day whether that's right or wrong, but that's just what people think. And then for someone to become interested in the North was a big enough step. And therefore then to, to become politically active when confrontations are, you know, where the levels of sympathy among the state forces in the South are almost gone, where people regard those who are active in Republican groups as, as beyond the pale. You've got a more working class demographic a lot of the time, um, as you say, a younger demographic, people who are, you know, rebellious, um, who are not going to have widespread approval. And again, you look at the, there is, you know, a lot of protests after the Bobby Sands, for example, and there is some strike action in Dundalk and Waterford and a couple places, but it's nothing like what you see after Bloody Sunday when you have um, this kind of wave. And again, that that doesn't necessarily um, indicate in 1972 huge levels of militancy. In 1972, um, firstly, strike action was very common. 
and it was at a time when even trade union leaders used to complain about how sacrosanct picket lines were so once people walked out people didn't pass pickets you know it was just you know so actually that was one way in which it was quite a common method of protest that people could immediately identify as well that's the factory's closed now you know by 1981 that had begun to change too you know so people are a lot more wary of well if the factory closes will it ever reopen you know so that's the other point is that you can't separate the effect the north has from the fact that people think southern ireland's going downhill in the 70s after the oil crisis growing unemployment society rising crime in many people's minds the north comes tied into this whole things have been going so well and now everything's going very bad so again it has those connotations which are not not factually correct you know it's not the cause of economic mm. crisis but it, in people's minds it becomes tied in with this idea that everything seemed to go wrong in the early 70s and and that coincidentally is when the north went to war as well so it's this millstone millstone around our neck you know brian thanks a lot you've been really really generous with your time i've really enjoyed that conversation today Um, just one wee question completely out of left field here one non-fiction book that you would recommend to listeners i'm hoping to ask everyone we're interviewing on the podcast so one recommendation non-fiction book hopefully bombs bullets in the border <laughs> yeah definitely um well there's so many books that i've enjoyed or books that i've really found important quite different i suppose is a book by um an american oral historian called studs terkel called working and it's just basically interviews he did in the late 60s and early 70s with people across the united states about their jobs and aside from your personal relationships, once you reach a certain age, an enormous amount of your life revolves around your work, uh, particularly, you know, in the case of, 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 you know, years ago when people often were in jobs for most of their lives. And it really does then define to a great extent what people do with their lives, whether they've got a good job or a stable job and all the rest. And he did those interviews at a time when America seemed to be falling apart in the late 60s and early 70s when it was cutting across class and race, the Vietnam War. So he's interviewing policemen, he's interviewing fire firemen, as they were at the time. Um, he's interviewing um, teachers, he's interviewing secretaries, he's interviewing aerostesses, he's interviewing factory workers, he's interviewing miners. He's interviewing, you know, all kinds of jobs, couriers, whatever else. And of course, what you're getting is a picture of America in that period, but still based around the fact that this is what you have to do from nine to five. And I think in terms of Irish history, it'd be very interesting to look at, at our society. A lot of the time we don't tend to look at Irish history, you know, but even when you look back to the 70s and this is related in some way, it's a very tragic example. And, and this is a, a terrible example, but in some ways it shows you what a different society existed in the 1970s and maybe we don't appreciate it when we think about Ireland, even because it's it's relatively recent, but in in the bombings that took place in Beltorbet in December 1972, when two teenagers were, were killed, um, Patrick Stanley and, and Geraldine O'Reilly. I mean, Patrick Stanley was 16, but he was a lorry helper. And Geraldine O'Reilly was 14 or 15, and she was a trainee hairdresser. Both those people were in the world of work. They'd, what we would consider now very young teenagers were working then they were part of the working population so even the way we think about work and what people do has changed an enormous amount in 40 years you know 40 years ago someone doing their intercert for many people was their opening into life and we're at a stage now where people talk about you know almost university as, as the only way you get all kinds of, of jobs so i think 
Studs Terkel's book is, is interesting because it's about people's work and I think you can learn a lot about society by the jobs people do and how they feel about those jobs and then from a historian's point of view that's a great way of, of analysing society more broadly I wasn't expecting that book Brian very interesting I must look it up and it's 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 fascinating because when you read your work you can see that inside it like your work that's coming out on the 70s a lot of it relates to ordinary people how ordinary people on the street reacted to these events not the big political figures so I think that, that's a fascinating book when can we expect to see your work out well thanks very much for saying that and I hope that that that's aspect comes true in it um i'm hoping that it'll be out next year it's i'm saying this now there's gaps you know it's fragmented reconstructing how people felt about the north is very difficult when the vast majority of people do not record their thoughts on a daily basis about these events so it's trying to really see how southern irish society was affected how people responded and the way in which I think, from a personal point of view, as a child in the 1970s, I always thought the North was there. It seemed to overshadow everything. And there's historians have written really that it didn't have much of an impact. So it's in many ways, personally for me, a way of trying to, to discover, was it, as it seemed to be at the time, this thing that was always there in the background in, in our society? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Brian. And I think I agree with them final sentiments of yours. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Thank you very much.